Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Hey guys, welcome back. It's me, Jess, your host of Absite Smackdown Podcast. Here with me is my co-host, Dr. David Kashmir, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Gordon Lindbergh. Hi, Dr. Lindbergh. Hi, Dr. Kashmir. Hey guys. Hi, Jessica. Good to be with you again today. And Gordon, nice to see you. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. Nice to see you too. Well, guys, uh, like Jessica shared, welcome back to the podcast. And today we're speaking with Dr. Gordon Lindbergh. And uh, Gordon and I have had occasion to work together at some centers across the country. It's been great to work with him. And I'm so happy to have him uh, with us today. Dr. Lindbergh's background includes a career of creating and turning around burn centers, and he's no stranger to one of the things we'll be talking about today, which is patient volume. Uh, Like Jessica said right before we went on, and like she'll share in a little bit, we're talking today about training and changes in training that we've seen in our time. And no one understands this better, perhaps, than uh, Dr. Lindbergh, who uh, trained uh, much before some of the current uh, GME uh, requirements and now has continued his career with uh, large volume centers, including uh, the, being the medical director of the burn unit at the University of Colorado in Denver, where he grew the unit for, uh, to more than double its previous size in terms of capacity. Uh, patient volume grew, and again, like we're talking about today, no stranger to volume. Subsequently, uh, Dr. Lindbergh grew out the, all the things necessary to continue to be a compliant burn center, And as things changed, one of the requirements to take care of critically ill and injured uh, burn patients and to continue with critical care provision is to have surgical critical care uh, uh, fellowship. And as you can imagine, it's no easy feat to go back and learn more. And that's exactly what Dr. Lindbergh did completing a surgical critical care fellowship at Carillion uh, in Virginia, which is one of the places I trained. So with that, again, welcome to Dr. Lindbergh, who has special expertise and firsthand knowledge on the subject. And Jessica, where do we go from here? Well, I find it fascinating that the six degrees of Kevin Bacon apply to you guys because you have all the crossover. Um, Maybe it's just in the medical community, but I find that fascinating. So um, like Dr. Kashmir said, just a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. Um, Not just volume, but because such vast experience that Dr. Gordon has, we're going to talk about when he was a resident, the things he went through, how he learned in comparison to how it is today, the differences, and also what he thinks is going to change or what needs to change and educating the surgical residents as they're coming through now. And so it's, I'm really excited about this to hear from someone with so much experience. Um, so Dr. Lindbergh, can we reminisce a little bit about the good old days and you can just tell us a little bit about when you're a resident, your experience, how you learned what works best for you and maybe how that differs from today. Well, um, can you hear me? Yeah, perfectly. Okay, good. Um, well, I grew up before there was a resident restriction. And right. um, uh, I was on call every other night. Mm-hmm. So plus 90 hours a week working. Um, wow. And with surgery, um, you're just running around all day long from patient mm-hmm. to patient. You're so busy. Uh, for my first two years, there really was no time to learn. 
no time to sit down and read a book. Everything I was just learning on the fly from other people and learning just how to be a resident. Um, it really wasn't until my third year that I was able to sit down and read and understand and start to formulate my own ideas about how I wanted to take care of patients. Right. Um, and I found that if I was on a service that wasn't too busy, mm -hmm. then I could do that. I could read, I could learn. It was a great combination. Um, but if I was just flooded with patients and flooded with um, um, too many tasks, uh, I just didn't get to learn as much. Right. So what was available for you at that time? And when you got into your third, third year of residency and you could actually read, what books, um, what tools were you using at that time? Mostly books. <laughs> was there one in particular, something that you felt like really helped you through? Or? Oh, Cameron. Okay. Uh, Guide to General Surgery. And then also, um, uh, I think it was Principles of General Surgery. It was like a three, two-volume book. Which one of those have we talked about before, Dr. Kashmir? Was it the first we one? We talked about uh, Cameron, and mm -hmm. uh, we've really run through a lot of them. We've run through Schwartz and Cameron and mentioned those. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Lawrence, and then ACS Surgery, which used to be the Scientific American right. uh, Surgery book uh, previously. So uh, really, we've hit a lot of them, and it sounds like Gordon used Cameron, which is probably one of the most widely used ones uh, right. to this day. Is, do you was Cameron one of the ones that influenced you and in, in your work now and what you were doing with trying to write the upside back down? Uh, so Cameron is like Gordon will tell you such a huge volume book. And what I've done with it before is taken it apart and turned it into a PDF uh, mm -hmm. for, for me to be able to have in my pocket. It's right. so big that it's really hard to use it for an absite review. Right. Uh, when we did absite SmackDown, it was from the several surgeons notes mm -hmm. uh, and the cold from the different books they used. Right. Um, so portions are found in everything, uh, likely right. Cameron included, but Cameron was not, um, not the major influence for the book. It kind of lurks behind everything, mm -hmm. but it's not the major influence for the book. Okay, sorry, back to you, Dr. Gordon. I just, that sounded so familiar, so I wanted to touch on it really quickly. Did you, um, did you do anything like that where you broke it down into a PDF? If it was so huge, you couldn't really carry that around the hospital, could you? Well, um, I was reading the volume before it exploded in size. Mm -hmm. so ah, it was, okay. It was much more manageable. <laughs> we won't ask what year that is and date you like that. We'll just leave that open. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so now, you know, obviously, it is so different because the residents are limited on how many hours they can put in. They do have a little bit more, not saying that they have it easier or anything, but they still do get a little bit more rest time, a little bit more study time. They do have more options than you guys had with, you know, the internet and travel and different platforms. Um, so what do you think... Um, benefits them now that they have access to that they're learning differently than when you were learning? Well, I mean, the big thing is uh, the internet mm -hmm. because there are um, a lot more forums for surgery forums for um, critical care. Um, 
you can find videos on very specific topics and just get a nice little five-minute tutorial on it instead of having to um, piece it together from reading a few pages in this book and a few pages in that book. And the Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at AbsiteSmackdown.com. Um, it's available on your phone now. Right. Which it wasn't when I was training. I don't think, I, I didn't even get a phone until I was a senior in high school, so I can't even imagine. So do you feel like now with you being more in the teaching role and, you know, growing your own groups of residents throughout the time, do you feel like you utilize those tools to help teach them? Um, I do. I mean, there's um, the National Library um, PubMed. Mm -hmm. And if you're in an academic center, you can just get the latest papers on any topic very quickly. So it's a lot easier to upgrade any talks and find out the latest consensus on, on a particular topic. Um, I don't think that was available when I was a resident. I mean, the, the internet was there, but it just wasn't as fully fleshed out as it is now. Right. Yeah. Um, PubMed is definitely something that we use often, especially on our blogs and when looking at what we're going to do for podcasts, it's, it's so helpful and such a good tool. Um, Dr. David, you use, you use that a lot with your residents as well, correct? Yeah, we did. And, you know, part of website SmackDown, um, and just to let everybody know, uh, Dr. Lindbergh is uh, sort of one of the team members for website SmackDown. Not only does he have special burn expertise, but also surgical critical care expertise. He's going to be one of the uh, chapter co-creators, co-authors uh, for the upcoming edition. So we're really excited about it. And I'll share uh and also, I noticed we were talking offline. I have to mention it because I keep looking at it. He has this <laughs> fantastic fish behind him uh, that you pick as a background. And, and Gordon was telling me the story about it. I hope we get to talk about it a little bit later. But I'm going to tell you what. The technology to do things like this, the interesting backgrounds we use on Zoom, having Zoom at all, the AppSite Smackdown lectures, the positive use of social media, all these platform things didn't even exist. So I'm continually amazed by how far things have come, and like Gordon said, how readily available everything is. And yes, Jessica, uh, for the residents uh, where I was and where I was a program director, mm -hmm. we had an issue where necessity was the mother of invention. Uh, we did not have all the core surgical faculty we needed. And we needed a way to have a robust, compliant lecture series in addition to me giving the talks, which I did. We would uh, mm -hmm. do uh, academics uh, each Friday. Uh, and throughout the week. Um, but we needed some way to make sure uh, we hit the standard things for the absite, did absite prep, et cetera. And we needed to do that in a way where they could access it outside the hospital, et cetera. Now, I didn't use any resources of any kind from uh, the place I worked or any of their time to right. create absite SmackDown. It was late nights and uh, just, you know, making the stuff. But yeah. the quick version is, yes, uh, we use all those things the internet, et cetera. And you can see that in what you guys ultimately helped package and create as websites back down. That's how we did it. That's, that's why it came to be. I still think you should write a book about your experience when you were writing this book, because like you just said on here, very PC about late nights, but you know, those of us, with the Absolute Smack team, Smackdown team, we know a little bit more about 
how you were writing the book and how oh. interesting it was those <laughs> late nights. So it would be yeah. nice to have just a little side story yeah. on well, you writing that book. Years from now, as my career closes, okay. and uh, you can just kind of say whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'll be sure. I'll be sure. To okay, when you're out. an old man and you can say whatever you want. <laughs> an and older, it, right? And, yeah, an older yeah. man, an older okay, man. Okay, Anyway, yeah. <laughs> So, Dr. Lindbergh, right now you have been traveling a lot for COVID. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And so what do you think with, you know, this last year of it being so different, what do you think has really changed in the way that we're taking care of patients and doing surgery that the residents right now are getting to experience and learn that kind of gives them a leg up on previous years of residency? Um. That's a hard question. Sorry, well, <laughs> I threw that at you. The thing about the COVID epidemic is that I don't think it gave residents. I'm not. It's not giving residents a leg up. Okay, See, that's a good answer. These tools so that they can continue their education. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of medical education and especially surgical education is hands on. Right. Um, and when you're in the middle of an epidemic, you're taking care of one specific set of patients, right. the COVID patients. And granted, they're very sick. And granted, the COVID affects every single organ system in the body. Mm -hmm. So um, they're very complicated patients right. from uh, um a medical perspective you're not just treating their lungs you're not just running vents I and mean, then you're like i said every organ in their body the liver the kidney the heart the skin is affected by this disease so you learn a lot but it's just one disease process right and so um they're missing out on a lot of diabetic ketoacidosis patients mm. um, a lot of those patients suddenly became very compliant with their medications because they did not want to be admitted to a hospital. Right. And the number of DKA admissions went down during this epidemic. Um, surgical education, a lot of it takes place in the operating room. Mm -hmm. That sounds obvious. But you have no idea until you're in there and you have an attending asking you every single step, where would you make the incision? Mm -hmm. What instrument would you use? What layer of tissue is this? Now, how are we going to get through this layer of tissue without injuring the organs underneath it? Mm -hmm. I mean, you just can't get that from a book. You can't get that from Zoom. So that's your teaching style. You like to ask questions as you're in surgery with your residents. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, Dr. You know, I couldn't, Sorry, yeah, just to share, Jessica, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I couldn't agree more with Gordon. I think there's a very old uh, standard line that, uh, the operating room is the surgeon's laboratory. It's also the surgeon's uh, mm -hmm. teaching area, classroom. Uh, I think, like he said, uh, the type of questions you get at, whether that be directly as you do the procedure or otherwise, um, is just very different. And intuitively, I thought the pandemic was going to make residents who are more resilient and used to being flexible amidst uncertainty. But at the same time, I thought, like Gordon said, it was going to um, affect their intraoperative 
uh, learning. Now, we've interviewed residents, uh, Dr. Barsoom and some other resident staff, who feel like, hey, our residencies are doing really well, our case volumes haven't changed, et cetera, uh, which is fantastic. So there are definitely residencies that are temporizing these problems um, with some very direct interventions, uh, which is great to hear. Uh, are all residencies doing it? And to what effect? I don't know. Uh, but like Gordon said, uh, intuitively, it has to be an issue. We've seen um, residency uh, requirements in terms of, there was never an exact number of cases you needed really to be eligible for the board, but the American Board of Surgery and other bodies are now saying you probably need less than what you needed before. Uh, and that's a part response to the pandemic cases in your chief year, et cetera. Oh, okay. So there are several things across the country being done. And it's a long answer, but intuitively, I agree uh, with uh, Gordon. Uh, my style is very similar. I think surgery is a hands-on thing. I, hope, I think simulation here holds great potential, but many centers did not have a sim center that was appended to their residency. So they traveled elsewhere. It wasn't a robust part of the system. That may change now. And I know later on, we will be having on uh, probably in the next several months, a Sim Center uh, founder and uh, someone who runs it for GME. And we've talked a little bit about that offline. I can't wait to hear how often and how prevalent uh, he feels Sim Center usage is because it's an option. But like Gordon said, I really think it's got to impact and it has impacted in my experience um, residencies. And some residencies have taken really clear steps to make sure their residents got the best education they can despite uh, the COVID epidemic. I do find it interesting that both of you have the style where you ask questions during surgery. Cause I think that we had touched on before with studying when we go to studying the best way, the people that do the best on AbSite is where they just do the questions over and over and over. And so the fact that, you know, when doing surgery, asking the questions, that also is the way you teach. It seems pretty important that <laughs> And well, that's what works for this as well. It, it, just to uh, add in, it is much as you say that the evidence for absite shows that people who the that we went through, mm -hmm. the people who do many questions and definitely a critical mass of questions do better than those who don't. That's true. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe, and I'm interested to hear Gordon's take too, there's a, there's a knowledge base you just have to have right. for life and practice, not just the absite. Uh, and I think that's really key. And it sounds like Gordon was trained a lot uh, like I was when it comes to that intraoperative style. Right. I mean, you can ask questions, but they don't know the answer. It's not going to help. Right. All right, Dr. Gordon. Back to um, you. Well, for me, asking questions helps put things in perspective. And um, you're not just um, reading and assembling facts. You're mm -hmm. helping putting them into context. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best for your Absite review. It's one thing to um, read in a book about how a particular disease might metastasize and how you need to work them up. It's mm -hmm. another thing to go into the operating room and discover metastases right. and then think back how the workup could have been different. Right. Or would it have made a difference? I mean, sort of broadly speaking. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown, the only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. I think there's a big problem with medical education today 
we spend the first two years at a lot of college just learning science. Mm. And um, I have a PhD in biochemistry. And as much as I find nucleotide biosynthesis fascinating, mm. I rarely use it on a day-to-day basis right. when I'm rounding on patients. So they learn all this science, and then as soon as they hit the wards as a third year and even as a resident and a fellow, everything becomes protocols. Mm-hmm. You're going to work somebody up for um, cholecystitis. Okay, um, LFTs, um, ultrasound. And then uh, in the operating room, I've got to make sure I do this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. But there's never any sitting back and thinking about why we choose those tests. Right. And, um, what the test that you did before surgery might change what you do in surgery. Okay. So you feel like that's there's a hole there in that part of the education that we could work on or remedy? Well, I think we need to flesh out how we got to the protocols. Okay. We need to spend some time thinking about them and changing them as as things um, evolve. And um, again, you want to put the protocols in context within the, uh, the context of the human biology mm-hmm. instead of just um, step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Right. Um, and there's things about residency hours being decreased that uh, I think have ch- it's changed the industry mm-hmm. ways that I wouldn't necessarily have expected. Uh, one of them is that in surgery, it seemed like people's um, board scores, I know we're talking about abside, but board scores went down. Mm. Right? Did you know that Dr. David? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about that, especially at the beginning of um, in the beginning of the hours restrictions, like Gordon right. said, uh, there were some adjustments made to the test too. Uh, but as he said, uh, there was some concern that scores overall uh, decreased. And I want to hear more of what Gordon has to say. And then I want to pick up on uh, his comment on uh, protocol. So Dr. Right. Lindbergh, you were, you were saying there's some concern about the decreasing board scores. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, residency hour has, um, Oh, and then also um, because of the board scores, the other thing we noticed is that a lot of residents were completing their program, completing their chief year, feeling like they still needed more surgery Mm -hmm. practice. And there's a whole another layer of um, education called uh, transition to practice, Mm -hmm. where you spend another year doing surgeries. You're under the guidance of uh, attendings. And um, you'll spend a month doing vascular, a month doing general, a month doing critical care, a month doing cardiac. And um, they're not calling it fellowships. They're calling it a transition of care and polishing your skills. But I'm sorry. I think it's a fellowship in general surgery. Mm -hmm. After completing five years of general surgery. (laughs) Yeah. So something there... Something's off there. Yeah. That's an interesting, know. very interesting point. You know, I hadn't thought of that transitions, uh, transition to practice year as almost a de facto fellowship. It's interesting. 
you know, a lot of different uh, reasons were brought up for it, including uh, transitioning and learning about the administrative side uh, to have it be more all-encompassing. But I think the point you make is a good one. And I'll share, uh, I really have a lot of what you said about um, protocolization resonated with me. Uh, I have a Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt. I'm really big into quality. From a quality standpoint, having a way and deviating when appropriate, but having a protocol sure is useful. And yet, as Gordon says, I think the decision-making side, uh, the why we do this, is very challenging. And almost the way we teach it is, it used to be, the brute force method. Hey, do a lot of these. You'll see all the different ways. And then, you know, whatever attendings you're working with in the institutions you're at, well, that's how you do it. Be that the Mayo way, the Duke way, uh, wherever you were, that kind of pattern gets burnt into you, which may or not may not be functional at a different institution with a different patient population that has different resources. So uh, I think like Gordon said, and when we've worked together with COVID patients, there are some things we do at some centers where we are not able to get studies as readily, et cetera, like empiric heparinization and many other things uh, for patients who we think, well, maybe they have a PE, we're just, we just are going to anticoagulate and we're not going to get the D-dimer, it takes too long or it's not something. The point is just as he said, uh, and I would share that decision-making should almost be in different residencies, a separate conference, like a critical thinking conference. And that is what we tried to start and did start in our uh, residency. Uh, as you know, there's the a surgical decision-making book that we uh, share and review. Uh, it still does have algorithms, but it gives a, a great deal of why and this can work and allows residents to hopefully get to that expert level, like Gordon said, where they think of what they're going to do in the OR, think of what they're going to do after, sometimes work backward to where they are now, and uh, just so useful. But like Gordon said, very undertaught, I think, in surgical residency, and that is critical thinking beyond just mirroring uh, what we see or what's functional at one center. So I just, I wanted to pick up on that, that I think really drives it home. I think you're both just saying that we need a book for that. <laughs> so I don't know. There's your next book. <laughs> One thing I noticed about the uh, residency uh, hourly requirements is that um, the amount of work didn't change. Right. Just the hours. So all of a sudden the attendings were working more mm -hmm. and um there have been two there will be two outcomes of that the first is that a resident with an 80-hour work week if that's what they're used to when they get their first job as an attending their post-call they don't go home they work a full day right yeah and so the workload goes up a lot and uh, takes people by surprise. The other thing is, in order to fill the gap, more mid-level providers yeah. are being available. And this is going to sound absurd, but it really happened. Um, during my last year at Denver, I think we admitted 300 patients. And there was a time that I ran that unit all by myself with no help and one mid-level provider who ran clinic. Wow. A year later, I think the volume went up to 350, maybe, maybe a little higher, and they had three attendings and five mid-level providers. Goodness. <laughs> so it's been slow, but mid-level 
providers are becoming a bigger and bigger part of the workforce. The thing that, since we're here talking about resident education, that I find um, fully disrupted by the 80-hour work week is continuity of care. Um, Speaking in terms of generalizations and stereotypes, when I was a resident, we used to kid the medicine residents because they never knew their patients. And you'd see a typical night resident on a medicine service running around with six pagers. And it's because everything was being passed off Mm -hmm. um, to the night resident. Surgery, when I was beginning, you were there. Mm -hmm. You were there all the time. And so you knew your six patients. And then when the 80-hour work week came along, all of a sudden, surgery residents were carrying six or seven pagers at night and didn't know the patients either. And so there's been a big drop in, I think, continuity of care. And um, as a surgeon, you admit somebody who has an acute abdomen in the middle of the night, you want to take that patient to the operating room and you want to see what was on the CT scan or what you thought what was going on. But with the residency hours, you don't. Right. And I would, just, I would just add into what Gordon said. The, the danger and the catchphrase, Jessica, is episodic care. Episodic care becomes more common, meaning you jump in, do something, you take the HMP, but you're not in the OR with the patient. Right. Or you, you're in the OR with the patient, but you're not the guy doing the follow-up or girl doing the follow-up. So to prevent having a residency filled with episodic care, Some residencies have now taken really direct measures to promote as much continuity as we can, given uh, the hours restrictions. And like Gordon said, I think there was some trade-off here, but some centers have focused interventions. These include morning report with both teams Mm -hmm. present, which is both an academic opportunity and a handoff opportunity. And like Gordon said, handoffs are more important than ever. That's why they're the focus of so many quality interventions. The reason they rose in import so much is what Gordon said, the challenges of passing off all this information, the important parts, and getting patients through safely, despite handing them off one to the next to the next. And the last thing is mentality, Uh, making sure the residents still have the mentality of patient ownership and understand that special bond of if you're the one who operated on this patient, or you are, what that means. Uh, you know, you've, you can't overstate it. You can't overstate the responsibility that comes with that. So right. a lot of what Gordon said really uh, hits home with me yet again. And I just wanted to share that there are uh, across the country, uh, lots of residencies are trying to take steps to promote it because at least they recognize it. Uh, right. but even with that, it's been to variable effects. Some are great at it. Like Gordon said, some aren't so great at it, but it's recognized at least and different groups are, are trying to do stuff about it. Yeah, so just to make sure that I understand. So before you would, you know, once you got the patient, you were there from the beginning to the end. And now it's more like a relay race where you're passing the baton and there's three or four people right. on the team and it's going down instead of you just doing the whole race. Correct. Am I, am I okay. Yes. All right. One of the early studies that was um, touted a lot as showing a benefit of uh, reducing residency hours Um, published, I think, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, The conclusion of the paper is that there were fewer mistakes made and patients did better if we restrict resident hours. Mm -hmm. But 
the thing that happened that was in that study that people don't talk about is there was dedicated isolated sign out time mm. they actually did two interventions in that paper one of them was decreasing resident hours the other was a dedicated i think it was an hour a day when the two teams would sit down in a room and they had scripted sign outs and i would say that the scripted sign outs were the reason why the patient care improved mm-hmm. and not the decrease in hours mm-hmm. and there have been a few studies in the last 3 years or so that are showing that if we try and look at just hours of sleep and its impact on patient care it's not as um hurtful mm-hmm. as people initially thought and the biggest problem in healthcare these days is in handoffs and is in communication yeah i think communication is lack of communication or breakdowns in communication is a problem not just in healthcare that's in everything most mistakes in any profession is from lack of communication so yeah and i think the ADR work week has shown that yeah. Um, um. Well, guys, I, uh, I've appreciated yeah. the time today and talk. I know how we're doing on time. And Jessica, you asked me to be the timekeeper a little bit. Today. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll say this is a great discussion. It's so robust. And the next places it can go uh, include things uh, like the importance of handoffs, how to do a good handoff. I mean, there's been so much written about it. So right. probably something in the future. Uh, we could have Dr. Gordon back talk about it, but I know everybody's so hard at work on the book and that's going to be coming out yeah. really soon. But this is definitely one that expands because as you can tell, uh, both Dr. Lindbergh and I have strong feelings having <laughs> gone through uh, pretty much one model of residency. Mine, right. just the beginning of the hours for interns started at the end of mine, but pretty much um, that uh, hours change issue, how it's been so different and, and what we've seen is different. Uh, in how we train uh, residents and the residents who come through the service and the service adjustments we've had to make to be compliant with those hours and other restrictions. We can talk about the Bell Commission and all the background uh, legally and where this sort of originated. And as Gordon said, the evidence for fatigue, there's a ton of it. It's a special interest of mine. So boy, uh, this has been a great one today. (laughs) I I, I do want to hear, go ahead, Dr. Gordon. Um, um, I don't want to sound like I'm against the 80-hour work week because I'm not. Right. Um, but I do think that um, we have to address the fact that board scores have gone down. We have to address the fact that there are more communication errors. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not going to be as simple as, oh, well, then let's just go back to the long hours. Right. Yeah, I think, I think you're really right about that, especially to anybody from uh, either the college or the American Board of Surgery who listens. We want to be clear. We're not trying to be regressive. We Everybody accepts the hours and we understand the importance of it. I think like Gordon said, though, it really highlights, it has unlocked, like every bit of progress, a new set of complications. Just like when we do a new procedure, there are now different things to look out for. It's the same thing here. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something to, to really talk about in the future. Before we go, Jessica, if you don't mind, yeah. Dr. Gordon, I want to hear about the fish behind you. I've been looking at the fish the whole time, <laughs> and I'm really curious. I know you mentioned before. That's a photo you took. Yeah, let's end on a happy note yeah. here. <laughs> so it's uh, a sunfish. And to me, they're, uh, I mean, Mother Nature is crazy. 
and what it can produce. When they're born, uh, they can fit. They're the size of your thumbnail. Huh. And then they grow and grow and grow. How amazes me because they feed off of jellyfish. Oh. That's their diet. And you know that most jellyfish are water. So somehow they're able to get to these enormous sizes just feeding off of jellyfish. Right. Uh, and this was taken off the coast of Maine where the water is cold. Right. So I was surprised to see it there, but it was there. Um, and there was a lot of jellyfish in the water as well. So obviously it was following the jellyfish. Right. And they can get quite huge. Um, they swim on their side, and I think it's for thermoregulation. Because mm. um, they're very like thin and flat, right? They're thin. Right there? Yeah, they're, they're not super thin. And when I saw the photo, we have some in some of the aquariums down here in Florida. Oh, okay. As soon as I saw it, I said, wow, that's that rare fish that's, I think it's like an ocean sunfish. Gordon will correct me, but point yeah, being, they're sunfish. very they're rare. They're not that rare, actually. Oh, really? No, they're not? Yeah. They're not that rare. They're not endangered. They're, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but I just, they're the largest bony fish out there. Yes, okay. there are sharks out there, but sharks aren't bony fish. Right. And yes, there are whales, but those are mammals. Right. So, yeah. And, and they're these really thick fish, Jessica. They're like the size of a person. I mean, this, the photo okay. is hard to tell for scale. And they are thick, like you said, even though they go on their side usually when they're, especially at the surface. Right. So really fascinating. But guys, thanks today. Uh, Gordon, thanks for being with us. Uh, Jessica, as always, thanks for being with us. Anything else? What else do we need to do as we close out? Well, hello. Hashtag Absite Smackdown. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at absitesmackdown.com for more great Absite facts.